Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. And my name is Yuri Rashkin, and I welcome you to this program and this hour of broadcast. Before we get started today, our news team would like me to bring you a brief update. After a two-night encampment at the UW-Madison Library Mall, Police from at least four different agencies removed tents and demonstrators this morning, starting at around 7 a.m. UW administrations say the tents are a violation of state law that prevents camping equipment on state property. According to a statement this morning, at least 12 people were arrested, including some faculty. Several injuries have been reported by both protesters and law enforcement officers. The WART News team is covering the events as they happen and will be bringing a full report today during the 6 p.m. news. As of 10 a.m., at least two tents remained at Library Mall and more are reportedly being set up. We understand there's more now. Well, and let's continue and get back to our program at hand, which is, well, look at the calendar. It's May 1st, May Day, Labor Day in some cultures. And uh, today we are going to be speaking about an issue that I think is important and relevant to workers, and that is the end of non-compete agreements for nearly all jobs in the U.S. And I will quickly update those who may not be aware. Federal Trade Commission narrowly voted on April 23rd to ban nearly all non-competes employment agreements that typically prevent workers from joining competing businesses or launching ones of their own. The FTC received more than 26,000 public comments in the month leading up to the vote. Chair Linda Khan referenced uh, some of the stories she had heard from workers. She said, quote, we heard from employees who, because of non-competes, were stuck in abusive workplaces. One person noted when an employer merged with an organization whose religious principles conflicted with their own, a non-compete kept the worker locked in place and unable to freely switch to a job that didn't conflict with their religious practices, end quote. The FTC estimates about 30 million people, or one in five American workers, from minimum wage earners to CEOs, are bound by non-competes. It says the policy change could lead to increased wages totaling nearly $300 billion per year by encouraging people to swap jobs freely. Well, um, a lot to get through, but I couldn't be more excited to welcome to our program, uh, Ward Airwaves, uh, Professor Evan Starr, Associate Professor, PhD Economics, University from University of Michigan, who's uh, Assistant Professor of Management and Organization at Robert H. Smith School of Business at University of Maryland, and whose work on non-competes has been so crucial and so frequently cited in, in all of this uh, work and the rule changes uh, uh, Dr. Starr, Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us, please. I, I'm just interested, how does an academic get his work so prominently featured uh, in, in government action? And how, how did you get to, you know, this level of influence? Well, it's a it's a long story, I suppose. Um, I think there was a, a, a significant amount of luck and, and timing. Um, you know, it was about approximately 2014 when there were these extreme examples of non-compete agreements that were found. For example, uh, it was discovered that minimum wage sandwich makers who were making sandwiches at the fast food chain Jimmy John's had non-compete agreements that prohibited them from joining effectively any food establishment within two miles of any Jimmy John's. And that sort of set policymakers sites on non-competes and then they wanted to know, you know, is this an anomaly? How common are non-compete agreements? And it was at that time that I, I, I was sort of the only one who had nationally representative data on the use of non-compete agreements. 
which showed that the Jimmy John's case was uh, unfortunately not uh, an anomaly. And that sort of kicked off the whole the whole federal interest. Uh, and then it kind of snowballed from 2014 over the last decade to, to where we are now. And I will remind to our listeners to give us a call at 608-256-2001 and become a part of the conversation. Have you ever signed um, any non-compete agreements? Uh, what happened? Uh, tell us your story because this is what, what we're discussing here today. What are some of the stories uh, that, that you have heard from people that uh, made you feel that you're on the, on the right path, or that this is a research that is, is worth the uh, direction worth pursuing? Well, you know, thanks so much, Yuri. It's, it's a great question, and I could take up the whole hour answering it. So let me try to give you the at least the shortened answer. So, uh, as Yuri kind of mentioned, a non-compete agreement is as a contract term that workers would agree to that stipulates that they won't leave their employer and then go join another firm in the same industry or start another firm in the same industry. And these these agreements have actually been controversial for a very long time. Uh, you might think that non-competes are new. They're certainly being mentioned in the press a lot more, but actually they go back to the 1400s. The very first non-compete case was in 1414 and involved a, a dyer of fabric. And the way that non-competes arose actually is in, is in the guild era where you had master craftsmen who would take apprentices, you know, think of like a, a master um, mason who uh, who needed help and they would take on an apprentice for several years and they would help train that apprentice until that apprentice became a master mason as well and then the master mason didn't want his his you know uh, his previous apprentice but now his his uh, you know his um, his partner to go then compete with him in the product market and so he would ask him to sign a non-compete agreement and the early courts saw that as sort of a a, a really um, a strong restriction because it prevented this individual who is now trained from providing services locally and being able to work for his own livelihood with the skills that he developed. And so the courts were initially really skeptical of non-compete agreements. And this sort of all changed in the 1600s and 1700s when courts started to realize that maybe there is a quid pro quo here, that maybe the, the, um, you know, the apprentice was receiving valuable training that they wouldn't have got absent the non-compete agreement. And, and so there's this sort of tension that has developed over non-competes, which the courts have been debating for literally 600 years, which is how do, you, how do you treat restraints of trade on this? And there's sort of one camp that sees non-competes as very restrictive. You know, they, they see uh, that, you know, if you get a better job offer in your industry, a non-compete would prohibit you from, from taking that offer. And so it can tamp down on job mobility. It can tamp down wage growth. It can tamp down entrepreneurship if you've got an idea to go start a new company. And so these direct restraints of, on trade can have really severe consequences for people's lives. And the stories that you hear are just heartbreaking. Stories of people who are sexually harassed in their job and have all of this industry expertise but can't feel like they can't leave their employer because they have a non-compete agreement. Um, you've got stories of physicians who are so tied to their industry but they're in a, an abusive workplace and they're unhappy. And in order for them to keep working as a physician, they would have to literally move out of the state and move their whole family or drive hundreds of miles either way. And there's these difficult stories of, you know, workers who are on the wrong sides of these things being, you know, their career is being ruined by, by non-competes seemingly unnecessarily. And so that's sort of one side of the debate. The other side of the debate sees non-compete agreements uh, totally differently. And, and this is what really spurred me to get into this research because there's really, depending on your perspective, you can come out on either side of this debate. So here's the pro-non-compete perspective. The pro-non-compete perspective says, non-compete agreements are important for protecting firm interests. If I have a valuable secret, for example, maybe the, the formula for Coca-Cola, and I need to share that secret with you because you're, you're my master brewer, you have to know it in order to do your job. But if I'm worried that you're going to take that secret and run across the street and sell it to my competitor or become my competitor, then me as the, the firm, I may have no incentives to develop that secret in the first place. And so the non-compete agreement serves as a promise that you, you make to me that I, you know, that you, because you're not going to go Pete, I, the company now have the incentive to share that secret with you. And that makes us all better off. You can make better drinks, 
I can, uh, you know, we can all, we can all, we can serve the consumers better. So non-compete agreements are good because they incentivize the company to invest in the, in the creation of valuable information and to uh, share it with their workers. But the isn't, there, isn't there some kind of middle way? So this is exactly the, the question. Well, let, let me finish on that last point because there's another yes, one, one other point I need to make here and then I'll, and I'll come back to this, which is that th this pro non-compete perspective sees non-competes fundamentally as agreed to contracts, which is that the, the economists would say, you know, workers don't have to sign these agreements. There's nothing in them that says the worker has to sign. The worker can walk away at any point in time. And so whenever you see a non-compete agreement, these folks would argue, it means that the worker is actually better off because otherwise they wouldn't have turned it down. And if the firm also agreed to it, it means the firm is better off. So every time you see a non-compete, the worker and firm should both be better off. And so you can see these two, two, two camps, right? This kind of like pro-non-compete camp and anti-non-compete camp. And we've had a kind of a theoretical debate over the last really 600 years. It's not clear who's, who's right and courts have sort of taken a case-by-case -case reasonableness approach. Uh, this is true in Wisconsin, where if you have a non-compete in Wisconsin, it'll go to the court and the court will determine if it's reasonable or not. And there's a whole test for that. Um, and what we've had in the last decade is this outpouring of evidence, which has begun to tilt the scales sort of in favor of this anti-non-compete perspective. Uh, to your point, Yuri, about kind of a middle ground. Yes, you're exactly right. So um, if you want to protect company secrets, a non-compete agreement is a very blunt way to do that. And that's because it prevents the worker from joining a competitor or starting a competitor in the first place and thus precludes the worker from sharing that information. But there are other tools we have to do that. We have uh, non-disclosure agreements, which directly protect trade secrets and confidential information. You have agreements not to solicit clients that say you can, you, you know, you can leave, but you can't reach out to the clients you worked with. Or you can leave, but you can't share information. We have a body of law related to trade secrets that if you share trade secrets, you can be sued for them. And so the, the key question, Yuri, which you're exactly right to think about is, what's the kind of marginal value of non-competes relative to these alternative tools that firms have at their disposal, which are less restrictive on employee mobility? On one hand, I'm thinking that, like, listening to, to your explanation, that perhaps then non-competes maybe are a duplicate uh, for, for other ways that you can protect your proprietary information and, and, and so on, but um, and, and then I think that perhaps this is a change then without much difference. So there isn't this restriction, but there's other restrictions. And in the end, workers are restricted. That's it's exactly right. In some sense, if you imagine a world in which workers abide by their non-disclosure agreements and abide by their non-solicitation agreements, which, by the way, often come already alongside non-competes, then what the non-compete is just doing is it's not actually adding any more protection to the company. It's not any more protection to the secrets. It's just preventing workers from taking a better job in their chosen field. And I think that's where you get this, you know, this, it's really, it's an empirical question about are the other tools as efficacious as non-competes in terms of protecting proprietary information? I think that has been kind of the, one of the, the key questions that we've been trying to answer over, over the last few years. How does this field look in, internationally? Because thinking back to my, you know, Soviet upbringing, I think of my father who, I guess, in a way, signed a, uh, like a non-compete with the Soviet army. And we knew that we would not be allowed to immigrate from Soviet Union because until that certain number of years passed after he served in the Soviet military, even though his job and service in the compulsory Soviet military was, I think, to like guard officers club or something like that. But so this is like a, it's a worldwide situation, isn't it? it? It's very much a worldwide. I mean, even, even, well, just so we're clear. So even in the U.S., there's a ton of different state policies. So state policy has typically governed non-competes. This FTC action is sort of the first federal action to try to cover non-compete agreements. There's been some bills in Congress, but uh, I'll get to the global issue in a moment. But I just want to highlight that in the U.S., it's been a state issue for over 200 years. And there is some some really interesting pieces, which is that there were three states uh, in the 1800s, uh, California in 1872, and then North Dakota and Oklahoma later, all of whom banned non-compete agreements. And there's this big debate. You know, when you think about these arguments we're making here about protecting firm investments, protecting innovation, 
uh, about the debate is about the rise of Silicon Valley. And several folks have posited that when you look at the history of Silicon Valley and you look at like a, a company that was, you know, um, like Fairchild producing semiconductors, that, that company spawned a whole bunch of competitors in the industry. They call them the Fairchildren. And the argument is that, those, you know, those, those companies then go on to, to create uh, the Silicon Valley that, you know, we sort of know today, which is a hotbed of innovation and job hopping and startup culture. And, you know, one, one explanation for that is that these workers could freely move because they happen to be in California, which adopted this policy against non-compete agreements. That's not the whole story, but that's, that's the debate. Coming to your point about global, uh, global issues, that what, what's happened globally is that the U.S.'s focus on non-compete agreements has spurred countries all over the world to begin collecting data on the use of non-compete agreements. So we, ha- we now have data on the use of non-competes in the U.K., in Australia, in Norway, uh, in Austria, all over the place. And it, it's become a sort of a global question of, you know, how, how do different countries handle this? What's the appropriate scope? Is a ban the red approach? Do you, you know, the UK, for example, is considering limiting the post-employment restriction period to just three months. Uh, so how, how do you handle non-compete agreements? And of course, other countries have other norms around collective bargaining uh, and uh, worker protections. And so the, the non-compete issue is becoming sort of front and center. And I'll just give you kind of a headline about the, at least the use of non-competes. You know, in, in the U.S., when you survey workers, about one in five workers reports having signed a non-compete in their current job. About 40% of workers report having signed one at some point. And when you look across the country, those numbers appear broadly similar. In Italy, the use of non-competes is about 16% as of a recent survey. In Australia, it's more than one in five. And in the UK, it's more than one in five. And so it, it does look like it, it, these issues that are cropping up in the US are not, they're not unique to the US. In fact, these, these contracts are uh, all, all across the globe and it looks like they're being used in kind of similar proportions. Fascinating. I, I don't know. You know, it, it, it's a. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a, a central, you know, standard approach to this. But it sounds like this is a, an issue that is barely gaining awareness that of its existence and and uh, um, how widely spread it is. So uh, there isn't a, yet a standard at this point of, uh, or at least even a direction. Or is there? Yeah, there, you know, there's no standard, I think, in, in how to enforce these agreements or whether to enforce them. There is, uh, at present, sort of a, a ton of uh, differences across countries in terms of their legal regime. I'll just give you a few examples. So in, in Italy, for example, the, in order for your non-compete to be enforceable in Italy, you have to have uh, a specific payment for the non-compete, which is separate from your traditional salary. Uh, in, in other countries, you have, to, you have to have what's called garden leave, where you actually get paid during the time where you sit out. In the U.S., that's not the case. In the U.S., let's say you sign an 18-month non-compete, which is the duration of Amazon's non-compete. If you sign an 18-month non-compete and you work for Amazon in the U.S., for that 18 months after you leave your job, you will not be paid by Amazon unless you have a separate severance agreement. This would literally be time where you are sitting out of the market or you're working in a different industry if you were to abide by your non-compete agreement. And so st- states do have very different practices when it comes to the conditions under which, or states and countries, I should say, have very different um, you know, enforcement practices. And there is, there's certainly no standard. And the FTC's rule, in some sense, is the broadest, because as of a few years ago, um, non-competes were enforceable in almost every state in the U.S., including in, in, in Wisconsin, where, where they still are, subject to uh, this reasonableness test. Uh, and I can let me describe it for the for the listeners briefly. So, if you have a non compete agreement, and uh, uh, you know you want you're thinking about violating it, maybe you get a better job offer. Uh, if you do violate it, you can then get sued for violating your non compete agreement. And what would happen then? Well, what would happen uh, is that you, the worker, would have to go to a court, and the court's going to determine whether to enforce your contract. And typically, they're going to try to enjoin you from, um, and and prevent you from joining that that company by seeking what's called a preliminary injunction. And that would mean that they come to a preliminary determination that you, you can't join the company. And so how do they make that decision? Well, there are typically three things. One is that they, the company needs to show that they have a legitimate business interest that they're protecting. So the company has to show that you have access to trade secrets, so you have access to valuable client information or some sort of company goodwill. 
The second thing is typically that it can't unduly harm the worker from enforcing this agreement or it can't unduly harm the public. And that's the typical three-pronged test that Wisconsin applies and most other states have applied um, historically in the U.S. And then the court is going to come to some, some judgment. Now, what's reasonable, you know, has differed across states. Uh, and so, you know, every state there is going to come to some different conclusions. And I'll just give you some example, like, you know, some, in some states, uh, if you're fired from your job, then the, the non-compete can't be enforced. But if you voluntarily quit, voluntarily quit then it, it can. So there are some differences there in, in terms of how, you know, the conditions under which a state would find a non-compete reasonable. Those do differ across states. I'll remind our listeners that you're listening to A Public Affair. My name is Yuri Rashkin, and this is WORT 89.9 FM. Uh, we're speaking today about the fact that FTC banned most non-compete agreements, and I hope that you, dear listener, will give us a call at 608-256-2001 and share um, your perspective on this. Does uh, Is this an important issue in your opinion? Has this affected your life? Were you uh, unable to compete or did you compete and and were there consequences or were there no consequences because Wisconsin doesn't in, enforce as I understand non-compete clauses and so to get to the bottom of all of this we couldn't have a better guest for you which is our guest this hour today and that's Professor Evan Starr uh, who's assistant professor of management and organization at Robert H. Smith School of Business, University of Maryland, and uh, whose work on non-competes is so foundational uh, to the changes that are being uh, enacted today. Uh, uh, professor, was this a big surprise for you? You were anticipating this, but but nonetheless, what your thoughts on the decision now by FTC? Yeah, you know, so I so I think we've we, we've set up this debate that's going on between this kind of anti non compete pro non compete camp, and um, you know that's been happening for a long time. And the FTC, it was last year, January twenty twenty three, when they they announced that they were going to ban non competes entirely, which is a dramatic shift uh, from where we were previously. And then just recently, they enacted that ban uh, a few week a few last week. And so you know, I think it's worth talking about how they got there. And what the evidence is, because what really they're relying on is this economic evidence. And that's sort of where I come into the picture, where over the last decade or so, I, I've been working on a variety of projects to understand the whose perspective is right on this. You know, if we ban non-compete agreements, what's going to happen to workers? Are workers going to be better off or worse off? What's going to happen to companies? What's going to happen to entrepreneurship? What's going to happen to investment? And this is where, uh, where my research has, has been really trying to understand this. And this is what the FTC relies on when they came to this conclusion that a ban is the best policy. So how did they get there? Well, the way that we've got there is through these studies. And the studies that, uh, that I'll mention here are trying to show effectively what happens when you ban non-compete agreements. And the way that we study that is at the state level where over the last 10 years or so and a little bit longer, there, there have been some states that have been experimenting with bans. So Oregon in 2008, for example, passed a ban on non-competes for low-wage workers. The low wage in that bill was for all hourly workers and then workers who had a salary that was below the median income for a family of four. In 2015, Hawaii banned non-compete agreements for high-tech workers. Uh, they left in low-wage workers, but they banned them only for high-tech workers. And then in the last really six years or so, about a dozen states have banned non-competes below various earnings thresholds. So in Washington, D.C., it's $150,000 a year. In the state of Washington in 2020, it was $100,000 a year. Uh, so there have been various approaches to banning non-competes. And what we've been doing is studying those state policies. And what we've found is that when you ban non-compete agreements, that wages tend to rise, including for low-wage workers, including for high-tech workers, the job mobility tends to rise, that entrepreneurship goes up, and crucially, that innovation rises. And this is, and to to come back to the to why those are such important findings, uh, like think about the this uh, Hawaii experiment for a moment. So in Hawaii again, they banned non-competes for tech workers in 2015. It's a very sophisticated population. They make a lot of money, and so if you if you subscribe to the view that non-compete agreements were sort of a bargained for contract term that workers would only agree to if they were compensated for what they were giving up then what you would expect is when non-competes are banned, 
that those workers would then be worse off because now they're not getting whatever additional compensation they were going to get because of the non-compete. And so this is, this is some of the evidence that pushes squarely against the pro-non-compete view. The other evidence that is really crucial is, on, is, is about innovation. And again, if you remember, the pro-non-compete argument is we need non-competes to protect, again, to protect our investments from being misappropriated. And there have been several studies over the last few years, in particular the last year, really, which have found that when non-competes are enforceable, that innovation falls. Even though, even though it does spur firms to invest a little bit, the net effect is for innovation to go down. And that's because uh, firms have a harder time compiling the right teams. They may not have the right ideas to work on. And, and this is, I think this is like the, you know, the, the fundamentally key issue, which is that firms want non-competes to protect their investments, but actually non-competes end up being a net drag on innovation. And I think that's, that is such a power, those are such powerful findings that have really pushed the FTC to ask whether we need non-competes relative to these other less restrictive uh, provisions like non-disclosure agreements. What about the effect that uh, a non non-compete agreement can have uh, in, a, in a state where it is unenforceable? Is that really is, is that anything? Yes, such a such a great question, Yuri. So, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I started doing research on this uh, is that when you you survey workers, you survey companies, and you ask them about the use of non competes, several studies have shown that non competes are still being used in California. Uh, even though non-competes have been unenforceable since the 1800s. And there are some reasons for this. One is that in California, one way that firms were getting around the ban was by stipulating what's known as a choice of law clause. And this is a clause in your employment contract that dictates which state's law will apply in the event that the contract is breached. And so this would be like, if I lived in California... And I'm and I'm uh, I've got a non-compete, but it's going to stipulate Wisconsin law. That would be the kind of situation here. And so uh, that's how companies were getting trying to get around this California ban. But those non-competes, if they were if they were actually uh, adjudicated by California courts, they would be held totally unenforceable. And California policy has made that abundantly clear. But here's the thing: even those totally unenforceable contracts, they have material effects which still chill worker mobility. And that's because even if you signed a non-compete and no court would uphold it, it still is, you can, some workers see it as a violation of their word, of their bond, that they agreed they wouldn't do it. And so even though the court wouldn't uphold it, they still will abide by it, even though it's totally unenforceable. You have workers who don't know that it's unenforceable. Workers tend to believe that contracts they sign their name to are enforceable. Uh, uh, and so we have these kind of, you know, firms Firms still use these non even though no court would enforce them, and they still have killing effects on worker mobility. And the way the FTC handled this is, you know, their their rule prohibits anybody from now entering into a non-compete. And so their their goal is to remove the non-compete from the contract itself rather than just make it unenforceable. Because then the if it's not in the worker's contract, the firm can't threaten the worker over it, uh, even though no court would enforce it. Um, Professor Starr, what about the, the economic impact? If we can talk a little bit about more, the only number that I, I, I caught, I think, was 5%. And, um, and, and if that's the only number that is currently available, then that's the only number. But how do you estimate economic impact of not having this piece of paper for uh, Jimmy John's workers to sign anymore? Yeah, so you know the the wage. If we could talk about lots of different effects, effects on employee mobility. What's what's the effect on wages? Uh, what's the effect on entrepreneurship? So broadly, if you look at the range of studies looking at what happens when you ban non competes for low wage workers, for high wage workers, all of the estimates tend to come in around the two to five percent range, which suggests, and those are economy wide estimates. So this says that if you ban non competes, uh, wages are going to go up by two to five percent on average. And so, you know, that, that every year, right? So that's a, that's a yearly thing. So that is the, uh, that's kind of the, the current punchline. That's where the FTC gets some of their estimates uh, is, is from these, these state bans. When you look at employee mobility, the estimates there are a little more varied. We have numbers from like 8% up to 17%. And so it looks like job, job hopping is gonna be more prominent. 
And I think this is this is a key thing for for companies, which is that if you're a company and uh, you are um, relying on non-compete agreements, the kind of canonical advice that you you'll hear from attorneys is okay. Without the non-compete, you got to figure out how to protect your intellectual property. I think that's 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 right. You still want to figure out how to protect yourself. But here's the thing: if you're a company and non-competes are now going to be banned. Uh, now, what that means is that you're going to have access to all of this talent, which you didn't have access to before, because of everyone else who was bound by non-compete agreements. And so, if you can think about your company and you're working in, a, in an industry uh, like manufacturing or professional technical services, where lots of workers have non-competes, this now creates huge opportunities for you to grow and hire the workers that you want to hire. And so, you might lose a few workers who are unhappy. But you might have the opportunity to gain a whole bunch of workers who are going to be a good fit at your company that you were previously unable to access. I appreciate your optimism, and I'm thinking there's probably several, you know, lawyers that are going to be out of a job if there isn't more papers to sue people over. So documents, so that 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 you know, and job hopping, I think is the key that I'm hearing here as as the as the most prominent impact of all of this. But then I also imagine as, a, as an extreme case, like a sports team where nobody's under contract, you know, and, and players and players are this game, these players and next game could be different players because it's free. It's freedom. Right. Right. And well, so sports are a different, a different issue in the sense that those, those workers have fixed term contracts. So you would sign a contract that you're going to work for this team for five years. And after five years, you become a free agent. And the team can re-sign you before that, or they can decide to sell you, but you hit the labor market in five years if you want to. And that's actually an alternative to non-competes that the FTC mentions, which is that you know you don't have to have an at-will employment relationship, which is the norm in the US. You could you could have fixed-term contracts where you say, okay, worker, you know, you're working for us, we're gonna pay you for the next three years. And um, you know, and so that that's an alternative that companies can can shift to. Um and there's there's some evidence of that, particularly in the media sector, where where workers tend to work on fixed term contracts. It's also a little bit more common in Europe. Interesting. Um, and uh, naturally, we have a listener asking, well, how appealable is this, Ben? Is this one and done, or will the courts make the final decision? Um, and and I think that's really kind of where you know the the next step step for this, which is this is great, but. Is this gonna happen? Is this going to stick around? Is this gonna go through some massive changes? Um, and of course, nobody knows. But at least, how do you see the process uh, for these changes going forward? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So uh, let me first talk about what will probably happen to the FTC's rule, and then talk about uh, what else might happen alongside that. So the current status quo of the FTC rule is that it was challenged already by the Chamber of Commerce and by a few other groups. And their main arguments are that the FTC doesn't have the authority to promulgate this rule. And so the, 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 the precedent for this is that uh, if this is considered a major question, which the Supreme Court in an EPA decision last year established this idea of the major questions doctrine. And when a, uh, an issue has become, uh, becomes a major question, the agency who is making the rule, in this case, the FTC, has to have explicit congressional authorization that they can regulate that area. And absent that explicit congressional authority to regulate that area, they, they are not allowed to promulgate those rules. And so the, the kind of threshold question will probably be whether or not Congress has given the FTC authority to regulate non-compete agreements. And that's where the debate will be. Most lawyers think that with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, that the rule will probably get overturned on this ground. Um, uh, there are some, but the FTC obviously feels differently. They feel like they have a they have a, a solid leg to stand on. That the FTC Act does give them uh, explicit authority to regulate non compete agreements, uh, and so that's kind of wh where we are. Most people think it will probably be struck down, but uh, you know, obviously, it is uncertain. But here is here is the one thing that's also happened, which is that the FTC's boldness and proposing a complete ban on non-competes has in fact already changed the conversation at many states. And I'll give you an example, which is that last year, the state of Minnesota passed a complete ban on non-compete agreements. Uh, uh, the state of New York also passed a complete ban on non-competes, although it was vetoed at the last second by the New York governor. 
And and so Minnesota last year became the fourth state to ban non-compete agreements in the first in over 100 years. And here's here's what I think is important. I think that the Minnesota state legislature would have never gone so far as to ban all non-compete agreements for employees if it was not for the FTC making that case for them when they promulgated this rule. And so I think the FTC has changed the conversation at the state level. Uh, and it's now more about, do we need these at all? Versus for which workers do we need these, which is where states were previously. So I would expect you know, the FTC's action to continue to catalyze state level action, uh, restricting non-competes, at least for workers below certain earnings thresholds. Uh, but, um, but perhaps more states will begin to countenance California and Minnesota type policies. So this the, this ruling, therefore, like you said, is a catalyst for change. But it is it's almost like an aspirational or directional change that is showing to the states the direction to go. But ultimately, uh, you expect this issue to be resolved on a still state by state issue, oh, state by state level. Well, so there there are it's not clear, um, and I say that because there are several bills in Congress right now, some bicameral, bipartisan bills, to to ban non competes and to give the FTC explicit authority if they don't already have it. And it's possible that if those bills were passed, that the FTC could indeed regulate non compete agreements should the Supreme Court decide they don't have the authority, uh, the existing authority right now. Uh, my, my sense is that given the sort of dysfunction that we have in Congress, that uh, we have a presidential election coming up, that uh, we're not going to make much progress on the uh, at the federal level on these uh, restrictions at this point. But I, so I do expect state action to be the primary driver of reform in this area moving forward. If if you could put, I mean, you know, the, this this is uh, America. There are elections uh, coming up, and if you can put on your political, at least a voter hat on, um, do you see these changes? In is it fair, reasonable to look at them in any sort of political through political lens and and uh, uh, and see this as a either decision that has a political under you know tone. Or uh, as a as a part of a bigger uh, bigger level of uh, changes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you know, as I suggested, that the fact that there are bipartisan bicameral bills to ban non compete agreements uh, suggests that there is sort of a rare issue that crosses party lines. And and I'll tell you tell you why. You know, when I when I talk to folks on the left, you know, they're they're mostly concerned about uh, worker rights and worker power. But when I talk to people on the right, especially those who are really libertarian leaning, they, they want competitive competitive markets. They want you know the labor market to be competitive, and this is a a, a clearly anti-competitive tool. I mean, it's 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 called a non-compete for a reason. It is about restraining competition in labor and product markets, and especially when these agreements are being thrust on you know low-wage workers who need to put food on the table. They see them as sort of a blight. On society, and so you do have this broad agreement about the the um, the harms of non competes, especially among lower wage workers. Where you tend to get some disagreement is uh, with regards to executives and sort of the, the 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 top of the company, and that's where I think you get a little bit more tension because those workers are not going to be coerced into signing a non compete. They're going to have their lawyers review it. They're going to think hard about it. And I think that if you if you countenance the idea of executives banning non-competes and you come to the agreement, the, the thought that you should ban them for executives, it's easy to see how you get there for everybody else. <laughs> but if you can't get there, then uh, then maybe you want to settle for like a, a wage threshold. And that was really the debate in New York that played out. And that's why the governor vetoed that bill. She couldn't countenance the idea of even, you know, workers making $20 million a year not having non-competes. And so um, I should not say workers, just say executives. Uh, so that's I think that's some of the tension. It, it's really not a a a, um, a a left or right issue. It's also not a worker versus firm issue. And let me just explain what I mean by that. You know, firms are on both sides of this equation, right? Firms don't want to lose their workers, and they don't want to lose their proprietary information. And non-competes help address those issues. But not but firms also do want to hire from everybody else, right? They don't want anybody else's workers to be bound by non-competes even though they want their workers to be bound by non-competes. And so this is this is this results in what we call a prisoner's dilemma, which is that you the firm only have control over your workers 
And so it's going to be maybe privately optimal for you to use non-competes, even if you don't want anybody else to. But if every firm does this, then it's privately optimal for every firm to use non-compete agreements. And what happens in a market where everyone is bound by a non-compete agreement is that we have no cross-firm mobility. We have no one starting new companies. Wages are stagnant. Innovation is stagnant. And the only way out of that is a government policy that says you can't use these agreements. And so that's, that is, I think, probably one of the strongest justifications for, um, for banning non-compete agreements. And you'll see that argument on both the left and the right. Well, you know, listening to you just makes me think of uh, non-competes as a certain level of copyrights that a company has over a person. And as we know, even Mickey Mouse can come out of uh, from under copyright. So who knows, you know, the, if you live in the right state, um, I guess. Are there uh, states that are particularly unfriendly or, or particularly hold strong non-compete clause and really protect employers or in, in the, or resist innovation this way? Uh, absolutely. The, the state that comes to mind is Florida, who in 1996 passed a law that uh, took that the three prongs of that reasonableness test, which again were that the worker has to have some legitimate interest that the company is trying to protect, a trade secret or something like that, and that the worker can't be unduly harmed by the non-compete, and that the public can't be unduly harmed. And the Florida law basically wiped out the worker being unduly harmed part. <laughs> so in, under Florida law, courts don't even consider the harm done to the worker when they are enforcing a non-compete agreement. And I think that's sort of the I mean, one of one of the more extreme um, uh, uh, statutes that that we've seen with regards to non-compete agreements. Um, but one thing that's interesting, though, in, in Florida is they do recognize the public policy issue in the context of physicians, and they have this unique law which says if you are a specialist and you are a medical specialist and you're and you're the only one in this in the area, then you cannot have a non-compete. And the reason is because if that specialist ever uh, wants to change their employer or start a new company, but they have a non-compete, they'll have to leave the area. And so that's going to deprive the local area of those services. And so Florida passed that law saying, if you're the only one, you can't have a non-compete. Unique, crazy Florida law. Who would have thunk it? Um, <laughs> I will... I will remind listeners that you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is A Public Affair, and I'm your host today, Yuri Rashkin. Uh, give us a call if you've been affected by a non-compete agreement. Our phone number is 608-256-2001. And we have a caller. Dan, welcome on the air. Thank you. Um, my question is, is if... The non-compete agreements go by the wayside. Will there develop eventually a market in proprietary information like royalties, like they do in the arts? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what will happen to the markets for IP when you have a ban on non-compete agreements? So I think, Dan, the right, the, the right way to look at your question is to look at where we have bans on non-competes and, and what happens. And so, you know, that you can look at California uh, where they, you know, executives haven't had non-competes, at least enforceable non-competes in California for some time. And, you know, there, you know, we do see more trade secret litigation in, in California. Um, you know, I, I do think you, you will probably see more stringent NDAs and non-solicitation agreements. Uh, what attorneys say when you ask them what they're gonna do is, you know, they revisit their internal protocols uh, in terms of information sharing and who who knows what, um, you know, I do think that uh, there there is well, so it's not totally clear what's going to happen. But there is one other context where where I just want to emphasize uh, we have a really great example, which is that there's only one job, one occupation in the whole United States for which non-competes are unenforceable, and it's been that way for over seventy years, and that is the practice of law. Uh, and that's because in the American Bar Association has invalidated non-compete agreements for lawyers, and every state has adopted that policy. And so if you want to look to like what's going to happen to, for example, you know, client-facing industries who have you know, big books of business that they transport around them, right? I mean, you can call these, these are trade secrets. Big lists of client lists are, are, are trade secrets under some definitions. 
And what happens there is the, the market for law becomes more based on reputation, you know, serving your clients well. And, um, and so I, I imagine that you might see some of that as the, as the workers become more free to leave, that the clients become more likely to follow them. And so you get a market that's more based on individual reputation more, more than, uh, than company reputation, for example. And the reason, dear listeners, you have such expert uh, answering, such an expert answer to this great question is because we have with us uh, Professor Evan Starr, who hails from, uh, he's an assistant professor at management organization at Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. And uh, Professor Starr's current research examines issues at the intersection of human capital accumulation, employee mobility, entrepreneurship, and innovation, which is like exactly what we are discussing here. So let me ask you, uh, Professor, this question, I think uh, a topic that really is relevant to Wisconsin, but maybe now more nationally, uh, unions. Is, is uh, how does non-compete uh, agreements uh, work with uh, with uh, unionization and those kinds of issues? Is that a totally separate issue, or is there any crossover that you see? You know, it's a it's a really great question. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of a lot of answers to this question. I've heard uh, uh, Damon Silvers, who is you know one of the um, the leaders at the AFL CIO, say he's never seen a collective bargaining agreement with a non-compete in it. Uh, there are a few decisions that I'm aware of uh, with regards to, to non-competes and unions. Uh, there was an early decision in, in, in the 1990s where a firm was trying to um, shoehorn in a, a non-compete agreement, and it was determined that the non-compete was not subject to mandatory bargaining because they argued that the non-compete agreement did not have a material effect on the current working conditions at the firm. And that's because the non-compete only applied after the workers left. And so this, in the 1990s, there was this case determining that uh, non-competes would not be necessary to be bargained over in a collective bargaining agreement. That was later overturned, uh, and there was another ruling that, that basically said, you know, because non-competes restrict your post-employment exit, it can have effects on your current working conditions. And so my, my understanding is that collective bargaining is likely one tool to protect workers from... Um, from non-compete agreements. And, and it's even, I mean, we can even go a little bit further, which is that if you think about the end of World War II, where we had, you know, uh, close to half of workers under collective bargaining agreements, we've, we moved from that world to a world of individual employment contracts, where now we only have about 6% of the workforce who are unionized. And so, you know, we have all of these workers who were previously covered by some collective bargaining agreement, and now they're all signing these individual employment contracts. And we know, I mean, I can tell you from experiments I've run, that most workers do not read their employment contracts. And in fact, many of them even skip the non-compete entirely. And so they're not even aware of what they're signing until later when they get a threatening letter from their employer or in their exit interview when they're reminded of the contracts they've they've signed. And this is where, uh, you know, so we have this issue of contracting inattention, where workers are not as sophisticated as the union leaders who are going to be bargaining over these collective bargaining agreements. And that actually might explain how you get a rise in all sorts of sort of one-sided uh, provisions, uh, like non-competes, like uh, very broad non-disclosure agreements that would cover so much more information than is, than is necessary. Um, and so it, it, I do think there's a relationship there, but we don't have any really systematic studies to nail it as, as much as we'd like. Interesting. And so now going forward, if uh, somebody encounters that there is a situation where they're expected to sign as part of their you know, starting employment process, beginning employment, uh, that they need to sign a non-compete and they go, you know, this is not... Uh, allowed anymore? When does this take effect? How is this uh, going to play out on operational level? How does this kind of work? Do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. So again, it, you know, assuming that the FTC rule goes into effect, the FTC you can report a violation uh, to the FTC, and then they would have the enforcement authority, and they would go after the employer, and and a, and a court would uh, would get involved, and a, and, a, and a judge. It'd probably be a slap on the wrist the first time, but then the second time there might be more penalties. 
if you think about what's happened at the state level, though, there's actually been a slightly different approach, which is that several states at this point have created private rights of action, which allow workers to recover uh, damages from being bound by a non-compete. I'll just give you one example. In the state of Washington, for example, uh, workers um, who are earning, it was in 2020, it was earning, earning less than $100,000 a year, their non-competes were, were per se unenforceable. It could not be enforced. That threshold has now risen because it's been tied to inflation. So it's, it's like 120000 an hour or something like that. But the point is that if, if uh, it's a bright red line, and if you're using, if you're a company and you're using non-compete agreements with workers below that threshold, the workers now have a private right of action and they can sue the employer for several thousand dollars. And what's been happening in Washington over the last few years as this law has come into effect is that attorneys have been starting to file large class action lawsuits where they can collect some substantial damages from companies who are not complying with the law. And so we are seeing that push. Many more states are adopting that policy. And again, I think it it's about trying to get the non-competes out of the contracts because even unenforceable non-competes can still have this chilling effect on workers. Absolutely. Well, we have about a minute or two left to uh, summarize this. Uh, Dr. Starr, who, are, who would you say are the winners of this decision and who are the losers? Oh, that's a, it's a great question. I think that the winners are going to be most companies and most workers. Uh, you know, the fact that, that workers are now free to take better jobs in their chosen industry and companies are, are going to be freer to hire workers who have the expertise that they need suggests that lots of firms and lots of workers are going to be winners. The companies that are going to be losers are going to be the companies who are relying on non-competes to retain unhappy workers. And, uh, and the, the, the companies that are, you know, for, for them, the non-compete agreement is about holding on to workers and they're able to sustain their profit margins because they were able to keep wages low. Uh, and, and, and they, uh, but the, they otherwise are holding on to workers who are unhappy. And, and um, I think those, those places are going to lose a lot of workers and it's going to be harder for them. Uh, I think it's also going to be a boon for, for startups and for entrepreneurship because workers can go now start companies. It's going to make it easier for small firms to hire from big firms who would have previously buried them in litigation. And so I, I expect uh, we're going to have mostly winners from, from this sort of uh, policy. Professor Starr, thank you so much for joining us today on A Public Affair and bringing so much light to this uh, important decision by FTC. Um, I want to thank our guest, uh, Professor Dr. Evan Starr, and I want to thank our great production team today, our engineer, Emmett, receptionist, Mary Jo, producer, Jade, and news director, Shali. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, Dr. Starr, and uh, keep listening to WORT. Uh, this is Yuri Rashkin. Take care. Because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision.